Right, you good to go? Hi, hi. Hello, everyone. Um... Okay. Um, oh. me, uh, I'm just going to play the opening jingle for Lovely. you. you. Uh, okay. Three, two, one. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening. The time is 8 o'clock. The date is 9th of February. I'm Laurie Khalid, and we are live on Teachers Talk Radio. On tonight's show, we will be talking to Dave Harvard, who will be joining us live from USA. He will be telling us all about cognitive psychology in the classroom. So if you have any questions for him, please phone or text us. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Lovely to see you. Um, so my name is Doreen Khalid, and we are live on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, a very warm welcome to all of you, and it's great to have you with me. Um, this is my first show of 2022. In January, I decided to visit family in Karachi, who I hadn't seen since 2019 because of the you know, coronavirus and everything. Uh, my visit was finalized rather suddenly, so I had to cancel a show or two while I was away. But that's the great thing about being a member of the Teachers um, Talk radio show. They understand that things come up and you may have to cancel a show or take a few weeks off. They step in and the show goes on. And here I'd like to give a big shout out to Alex Wright, who did some extra shows in my absence. Thank you, Alex. Um, if you want to be a member of this great family and host a show of your own, then please uh, head over to our website, www.ttradio.org, which has details about how to get in touch with us. The team will be delighted to hear from you and you may become our latest host with a show of your own. So on tonight's show, we I have the fabulous Blake Harvard, who will be joining us live from USA. I know Blake is uh, is ready and waiting, so he'll he'll uh, try calling in again, Blake, and uh, we'll. Uh, uh, yeah, Kate Kate's looking forward to be talk, uh, to listening to you as well. She says, "Great, great guest." Uh, Blake is ace, so if you try calling in again, uh, we can connect you to the show. Uh, while uh, that happens, oh, Blake's trying to call in. Yes, um, just give it another go, and that should work. Um, so, uh, yes, Blake will be joining us um, live from the USA. Um, he teaches uh, psychology, and he blogs at the, the effortful, effortful educator. Oh, I think we've got Blake in the in the studio now. Hi, Blake. Hello, how are you doing? Oh, not too bad, thank you. So so great to have you on the show with us. So what time is it in the great US of A? It is two o'clock in the afternoon. Right. And have I taken you away from something really important? 
Um, actually, not really. No, I've just finished teaching for the day. I um, our the way our school is set up, I have we have four blocks, which are about ninety minutes each. Uh-huh. Uh, I teach first, second, and third block, and then I have fourth block off, which is what just started. So, um, it worked really well for me. Oh, uh, it worked out. Ex- it worked out really well. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. It's great to have you with us and thank you for agreeing to being a guest on the show. Um, so I was, as I was saying, um, you teach um, psychology. Um, so tell us a bit about yourself and your background first. Sure. So um, I've been teaching um, full time for this is, I believe, my 15th year. Um, I have an a bachelor's degree in uh, science and a master's degree in secondary education. Um, I've been teaching AP psychology for a decade now. This is year number 10 um, and um, kind of got started. I moved to a new school and they needed a new a- um, AP teacher. Um, I went and got trained and started on that and um, the, the program itself has grown over the last 10 years now that the only prep, the only thing I teach and the only thing I have taught for the last five years has been AP psychology. So, um, and I, <laughs> I absolutely love it. Um, it's filled with teaching psychology, which is um, fantastic. What, what does AP stand for, for our listeners who sure. wouldn't know? So AP stands for advanced placement. Um, and what that basically means is, um, for the most part, and there are some caveats to this, um, at the end of the year in May, the school year in May, um, students who take AP Psychology have the ability to take an exam. And if they score well enough on that exam, um, they can get uh, college credit for that class. So, for instance, obviously they take AP Psychology, they take the exam, they do well enough, and the university they're going to go to accepts it, um, then they get three credit hours for AP Psychology. Um, or for Psych 101 probably, you know, just the basic psych class, but it saves them money, saves them time. Um, so that's kind of the real, I guess, driving factor of wanting to take AP classes. And, and the general overview of taking any AP class, whether it's AP Psych, um, AP Chemistry, any AP History or whatever, is that a little more rigorous, I'll say, um, um, with respect to curriculum and um, going to dive a little deeper into things. So, um, a little bit, you know, a little bit of a harder class, I'll say, um, with the reward of perhaps getting college credit, uh, at the end of the class. And I suppose it probably also gives them a taste for the subject. So if they want to take it up, uh, at, at a higher level, they've already got, uh, they've sort of started to understand what it's all about. Is that my internet playing up or have I lost Blake? Oh dear, I because I can't hear anything. <laughs> That's really correct, especially in AP psychology because um, the curriculum itself is just kind of... Oh, no. Noreen, can you hear me? Oh, it's... I can hear you, but I don't know whether it's your end or my end, which is playing up. It's one of our internets playing up. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I, can hear, okay. yeah, I can hear you right now. Okay. Would would uh, So, okay. Would you, would you like for me to keep going? Do you think it's working? Yeah. 
yeah, just keep going. Yes. Oh, I'm if, sorry. Okay. If you drop out, then uh, you know Joe, who's who's uh, behind the scenes, would let us know, and we can take. A oh, look okay. Back. Sure. So, um, especially with AP Psychology, it's a good kind of overview of many different topics within psychology. Um, there are units on learning and memory and um, biological psychology, social psychology, so um, and others. Um, but it gives them a real, just kind of a touch of of you know, perhaps more specific, um, you know, kind of subcategories of psychology that they may find more interesting. And, you know, if they go to university and want to take a class on social psychology, they kind of already have an idea uh, as to what they're getting into, you know. Okay, lovely. And um, just wanted to know, how has teaching been like you for uh, during COVID? Um, interesting. Interesting. So, of course, when it when it began, you know, a couple of years ago now, um, it um, we went completely virtual for the rest of that school year. I think that was in March, and from March until May, which is when school gets out, uh, my school is out for the summer. Um, we were completely virtual and, you, you know, we weren't, <laughs> we weren't really ready for it to happen when it did. Um, and then um, when we came back in, in the pool for a while, so we having the kids in class, you know, in front of you and being able to have that dialogue, um, I've, I found that uh, the students um, were more likely to participate in class, in person, um, than, you know, through a computer screen or whatnot. Um, now, since then, we've come back. Um, we've been back together, you know, students fully, fully in class, uh, for the most part, this, this school year, um, which is more enjoyable for me as a teacher. Um, we've had, we've been wearing masks, um, pretty much the whole time. Um, but, and what we're seeing now is that, uh, we had a, a big peak a couple of weeks ago where I live and, uh, the numbers are trending down now which is great for, for many reasons, but is, is great. Um, so it's been a little frustrating overall, you know, having to adapt what I do uh, to virtual school and, and virtual teaching and then back to face-to-face. -to -face. Um, but, you know, it, it's, you got to roll with the punches sometimes and you just got to do what you got to do uh, to educate the best you can. Blake, is it possible for you to move to a room where this connection might be a bit stable? When you come across, when it's good, it's really good, but then it sort of drops out and then we lose half your half of what you're saying. Okay, so is sure. Is it possible to move yeah, somewhere? Uh, let me see if I can move somewhere else. Thank you. So that's been uh, interesting uh, listening to Blake about how he's been teaching during COVID. Um, I think most of us, if not all, can uh, relate to that. Um, it has been uh, it has been really really different, hasn't it? Um, not something which um, teacher training or your NQT years could have prepared you for. Um, but you know, my hats off to everyone who's been teaching in these circumstances you've all been doing a great job and you still continue doing a great job so thank you for that so Blake hi yes is this any better uh, seems like it we'll, we'll give it a go and see what happens sure, sure. <laughs> right okay um so something which we hear quite often is that 
kids don't learn from teachers they don't like. Now, <laughs> uh, I have my views on that. Um, I'm interested about um, in your views on this. Sure. So, uh, in my best estimation, that arises from a TED Talk by Dr. Rita Pearson, I believe is her name, um, where she says that. And it, it is taken a little bit out of context, but she does say that sentence pretty much that but kids don't learn from kids from people they don't like. But um, to the best of my understanding and my beliefs that, that you, can't, you can't turn that on or off, right? Like, I don't think I can, my brain says, well, I don't like this person. So anything they say, there's, there's no, no possible way I can learn from them. Um, so I, I just, I don't buy into that. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, if I do like someone and perhaps trust them, which again, trust and like can be two different things. Um, but if I like them and I trust them, may I, you know, are there opportunities for me to probably listen more and pay attention more? Maybe. Um, but just the idea that we have to like someone um, to learn from them, um, I, I don't subscribe to that belief. Um, I can just imagine if, if, that, if that were true, I mean, how many parents, uh, at least in the United States, would, would come up to the school and say, well, sorry, my, my son doesn't like this teacher, so he can't learn from them, so change him to another class. You know, if that, if that were true, that would be, uh, yeah, that, that wouldn't be great. So, um, I, you know, uh, I'm not saying, obviously, that, that teachers shouldn't, you know, want to be friendly with their stu to their students and want to create an environment that's enjoyable. You know, we're not going out of our way to be mean to them. But being liked certainly isn't the goal at the end of the day. It's about education. It's about learning um, more than it is being the favorite teacher. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, uh, those of us who are parents can probably put our hands on our hearts and say there were times when we didn't like our own children. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Again, life isn't always about being liked and right. don't get it's It's nice to have friends and it's nice to be liked. Yeah. Um, and in certain situations being liked is okay. But that again, within the classroom being liked, isn't, isn't the goal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, again, something we hear quite often here in the UK, and I don't know whether it's the same in the U S but in the UK, we regularly get celebrities, um, especially during just before the exam results are supposed to come out saying that they've failed exams, uh, but now they're rich and famous, so it really doesn't matter. Exams don't matter, schools don't matter. So in your opinion, Blake, is there any harm that such statements can do? Definitely. Uh, I, think, I think there's a lot of potential for harm there. Uh, because, because what you're getting there is perhaps like a very particular anecdote, you know, one person. Um, Whereas that, that, that might not work for all of us. Um, you, it's very rare that you're going to get, have a profession where you don't, you don't need to be knowledgeable about something, where you don't need to know, uh, have, have information. Um, you know, the, the odd celebrity, the odd athlete that can say, you know, professional athlete that can make millions of dollars playing a sport, um, they can afford to say, I didn't need to know anything from high school. I didn't need to know, but, but most of us aren't, aren't that gifted athletically or aren't that celebrity. Um, so the idea that, you know, that comes across to me when they say things like that is that if I can do that, you can do it. Or, you know, since, since I didn't need 
to, to, to know chemistry or biology, then no one really needs. Um, and that's obviously not true. Um, you know, you need, you need knowledge to build on knowledge. So uh, by, by cutting out the, the beginning stages of that and saying, you know, I don't, I don't need to know things or information isn't important, um, it isn't true for most. But like you said, the celebrities with however many followers or likes or whatever, um, unfortunately, that, that's, that's the message that often gets out. Um, and that can be very detrimental to, to students who hear this and think, well, you know what, I, I don't need to try then, um, or I don't need to pay attention in this class, or I don't, I don't need this grade, or I don't need this knowledge, um, because it may turn out that you do. Um, and you may be missing out on information that you really enjoy simply because you, you've been told or you've read somewhere that you don't need it. Um, so it's very dangerous to, to think like that. Uh, and the other thing they don't say is that even you know uh, actors or actresses or footballers who've got to that high position didn't just get there by sitting in the bedrooms or or just exactly. you know they they did a lot of practice so they, yeah that that seems to be left out <laughs> right they you know just like just like a doctor can be an expert of medicine or a particular type of surgery you know um I'll, I'll say soccer players and sound a little ignorant in America, um, but soccer players, they've been working on their craft. They are an expert in that. Um, and, and just like I would hope that, you know, a, a particular type of surgeon um, wouldn't speak out of their field of expertise, soccer players, athletes, actors, actresses don't necessarily need to speak outside of their area of expertise either um, because then we're coming from a place of ignorance, you know? Yeah, very true. Blake, are you outside? We seem to be, um, there's a, a very strong wind wherever you are. Uh, I'm trying to get to a place. <laughs> uh, we have horrible service inside the school building. Ah, okay. so trying to get somewhere outside the school building, but there is some wind. So I'm trying. Uh, just don't get any hypothermia while you're talking to me. <laughs> oh, no, no. We're in the, um, we're, we're in the 50s or 60s around here. So right. it's, it's quite nice. We're not bad. Probably. Uh, it's, I just got on a light jacket, no big deal. <laughs> okay, right. So, um, coming on to uh, cognitive psychology now, um, what is it and can it, should it uh, be brought into the classroom? So, cognitive psychology is, is thinking about how we learn. It has to do with memory, what we know about, uh, um, as far as maybe sensory memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, how that plays a part in, uh, you know, linking that to education is how does that play a part in how my instruction should, should be uh, in the classroom? Um, how much practice of information should students do? Um, and how does this affect, you know, moving information from potentially short-term or working memory uh, to long-term memory? And it, it, from my standpoint, um, knowing how teacher training is in the United States, and from what I see on Twitter, I get the sense that it's like this in many other places, that it seems uh, <laughs> like poor training to me that we are in the business, teachers are in the business of, teaching things to, to students so that they learn, so that they remember, yet there is very little to no training on how memory works um, and what we know about that um, for our teachers. Um, it, and that, that makes 
that makes very little sense to me. Um, so it is incredibly, in my opinion, integral to, to being a better teacher, um, understanding at least just the basics yeah. of, of what we know about memory and, and cognitive psychology and cognition and um, how, how we learn better, how to make um, instruction more efficient and more effective for learning, which again, um, in my view, is, is the whole goal of all of this is to set students up for, for um, you know, knowing more things, to build on that knowledge, to know more things, um, to hopefully move society forward. Now, that's, that's taking it from my little classroom. Way out there, but but that's 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 hopefully the goal. I hope and cognitive psychology, a basic understanding of that is is key. Yeah, um, and I think it's it's yes. real cognitive psychology is. Uh, um, I I think the signals coming and going again, but uh, we, we, we'll soldier on. Um, Joseph just said that that's so true. He learned more about how his memory works as a high school student rather than on his teacher training. Yes, and that's true. I, I firmly believe, unfortunately, that what I tell my students in my class when we cover the, the unit on cognition, um, which is approximately two weeks, um, that that is more than many teachers know um, in, in my school in Alabama, even in the United States, um, which is shocking. And I, I, I kind of hesitate to even say that, but knowing that I have a master's degree in education and I got, I got none of that at university. Um, so it's, it's hard to say, it's hard to swallow, but, but I think it is the truth. That's very true. Thank you for that. Um, so going on, uh, you know, about committing knowledge to memory, etc. Uh, nowadays, again, another thing we hear a lot about is that we really don't need to commit things to our long term memory, uh, because if we need to, we can just Google it. Um, now, personally, I don't want, for example, my doctor to be Googling when I'm sat in the surgery. And I, I rather that he or she knew exactly what my symptoms meant and possible treatments. Um, and as uh, you know, Edie Hirsch had once said that Google isn't an equal opportunity fact finder. So I don't think you should um, say, no, you don't need to commit things to your knowledge because you can Google it. Um, you've written a blog uh, recently uh, about a paper by Sparrow, Leo and Redner. I hope I'm pronouncing the names correctly where they discuss the impact of having Google on the fingertips. Now, could you tell, tell us a bit more about what that impact is, if students can constantly just Google things? Um, sure. So, I mean, to say that, I mean, Googling, the, the ability to look up information isn't all bad, don't get me wrong. But like you said, I, I don't want my surgeon, um, while he or she's doing surgery on me, to need to look, look up something, you know. Now, now, where is this part of my anatomy? Like, I, I don't want that to happen. They need to have things in long-term memory. Um, I mean, just think about how inefficient life would be if, if every time we needed to know and be able to use any information, we had to Google it. Um, 
just just from an efficiency standpoint, that would be horrible. Um, the paper itself not only looked at it, the interesting thing for me from that paper is that it 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 wasn't the impact of of Google itself, but just the option for students, like looking at how, how their motivation, knowing that hey, at the end of this class, at the end of the day, I can Google this. So why do I need to why do I need to put forth the effort, you know, um, in the first place during class? when I can just Google the information at the end. Um, so it, it took it a step further, in my opinion, from just the, I can Google it right now to find the answer, and I don't need to know this, to just the expectation of Google in the future um, and being able to use that, which is um, really interesting. And, and pretty much what they found in their study is that it, it does impact effort. It impacts how much the students are gonna try, um, which is, is obviously not great. Um, and not not what we want uh, for our students. We want them we want them learning to learn, um, and not with the expectation of Google's around the corner. So it doesn't really matter if I know this anyway. That's true. Um, uh, Joseph just made a very very important point that um, there is so much misinformation on the internet as well. So unless you have some background knowledge already stored away, you won't be able to make an informed decision whether what you Google is actually true or not. Uh, you're exactly right. I think we, I think we both know that if we we went to Google and searched learning styles, um, we would probably find just as many websites saying <laughs> teach to preferred learning styles as not. Um, perhaps more saying teach to preferred learning styles, especially in the United States. Um, so that's exactly right. Um, you, being able to discern between what's good and what's bad and what's real and what's not um, is a huge um, undertaking for adults, much less students. That's, that's very true. Thank you for that. Um, right. Um, so, you know, I love your blogs. I, I, I make a point of, I subscribe to it and I read them as soon as they come out and I, you know, I just find them really fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> no, thank you for writing all of that. Um, another <laughs> fascinating one which you wrote was on forgetting and how that is negatively framed in schools yes surely forgetting is bad isn't it not exactly um, not exactly for 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 a few reasons i feel like you set me up for that one um <laughs> so in that particular blog i just kind of wanted to talk about how in schooling in general um forgetting itself is always seen as a negative right like the person that remembers the most gets the best grade. The person that can use that information the most gets the best grade. And if not, then you're deducted points. And, um, and I'm not saying let's go gradeless. And I'm not saying that grades are necessarily bad. Um, but we, we, from an early age, um, and I have a kindergartner, a second grader, and a fourth grader, um, five, eight, and a 10-year-old. And already it's, it's in them that, you know, oh, well, my friend scored better than me. They, they know more than I do. Um, and we all already are seeing forgetting as a bad thing. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Um, forgetting and I, what I tell my students and, and my children at home, um, is that forgetting's normal. Every, everyone forgets. Um, no one remembers everything. Um, but we seem to treat it as an anomaly in education when it isn't, it's not the exception to the rule. Forgetting is the rule. You're going to forget. Um, there's just no way 
to, to move, to put everything into long-term memory and then it sticks forever. There's going to be interferences along the way. Um, there's going to be what Dr. Stephen Chu calls choke points that, that, that inhibit us from getting information into our short-term memory and working memory and then into long-term memory. Um, so uh, just, just the framing of forgetting an education, I believe is, is it's a detriment to our students. Um, but then just from a, another level of, of forgetting, you know, forgetting tells you what you need to know. Um, so forgetting itself is valuable, right? If I'm talking with my students about reviewing for an assessment coming up, um, you know, it, it's not fun, like I said, to, to find out you don't know something, but that's an indicator of what you need to know. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, if I can, if I can study for a test and I can try to answer questions and when I'm reviewing for the test, I can already find out what I don't know and what I do know, well, I can kind of separate the, what I got right and I can separate that out and put it somewhere else. And then I can only have to really focus as much. Now I'm not saying don't come back to the things you got right, but, but I can, I can put a, um, kind of a stamp on, I need to study the things that I didn't get right from the get go. Um, and that can make your, your studying even more efficient because I'm not wasting my time studying things that I already know. Um, so forgetting it is an indicator of what you need to study. Um, so in that way, it kind of makes, it, it makes learning more efficient. It makes studying, um, more, more efficient, um, which is, which is big. I think one of the, the deterrents of students wanting to study, um, is that they feel like sometimes it's a waste of time and it, it doesn't teach them anything. Well, oftentimes they're spending their time studying things that they already know. Um, and they're not even aware of what they do and don't know at that point. Um, so forgetting it, it, it's an indicator, um, at least in my classroom. And I tell my students that. That's, that's really fascinating. Like I said, I, I love your blogs because they, they come at it, come at things from, from a different point of view. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, so that now, you know, students remembering and forgetting and then thinking of what they've forgotten and, and remember and trying to put that stuff into their long-term memory that takes us to um, a retrieval and spaced practice um, so we are going to just take a short break uh, for the news and us but when we come back I'd like you to tell us um, what is the difference between uh, retrieval and spaced practice and how can it be used in classrooms so after the break we'll be talking to Blake about retrieval and spaced practice so the news and ads now this episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, 
uplearn.co.uk. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, the Scottish Liberal Democrats have lodged 25 questions to the Scottish Government about plans to tackle ventilation in schools. One question asks about the health and safety impacts of the plans to chop the bottom of classroom doors off. Willie Rennie, the Liberal Democrat education spokesperson, said, This has been a torrid week for the Scottish Government. Its plans to improve ventilation in schools have been exposed as totally lacking in scale and detail. It is now two years since the virus arrived in Scotland. The lack of action on the part of the Scottish Government to drive ventilation improvements nationwide is leaving pupils and teachers shivering. The Scottish Government said it had provided councils with £10 million for ventilation and carbon dioxide monitoring, as well as the £5 million recently added. In England, teachers have warned that the release of advanced information on exam subjects for GCSEs and A-levels to mitigate the impact of the pandemic comes too late and may not be enough. Exam boards have said previously that they would release the advanced information now rather than earlier in the academic year so that pupils did not cover a narrow curriculum. Mary Bowsted, National Education Union Joint General Secretary said, There are grave concerns among teachers of exam groups that this will not be enough to fairly mitigate the disruption these students have experienced over two academic years. There is just one half term left until Easter, close to when exams begin, and little time to rush through any content. Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi said, that exams are the best and fairest form of assessment and that the information published 
will make sure students can do themselves justice. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, it's Safer Internet Week with the official day being on Tuesday the 8th of February. This year, the UK Safer Internet Centre is questioning whether gaming online is all fun and games. They ask young people to explore respect and relationships in online gaming. A lot of schools may be having drop-down days and you may be expected to deliver an online safety lesson. This is great, but are you confident in your knowledge? There's nothing worse than having to teach a lesson out of your comfort zone, especially when you're discussing a topic where the learners may know more than the teacher. Saferinternet.org.uk, the brains behind Safer Internet Day, have come to the rescue with a series of films under the heading of virtual assemblies on their website. Starting with a story about in-app purchases getting out of hand for 3-7 to seven year olds, and then for 7-11 to 11 and 11-18s to 18s, having a discussion on online behaviour and respect. This resource is informative and will allow those of us that are less confident to play the film and facilitate a discussion. As always, if you're going to use an online resource, make sure you've watched it first to make sure it's appropriate for your pupils. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome back. This is Teachers Talk Radio, The Late Show. I'm Nordin Khalid and I've been chatting to Blake Harvard about cognition and various other matters. Just before we went on the news break, um, we were talking about um, students revising and learning and putting things into, getting um, strategies to put things into their long-term memory. Um, so Blake, um, Tell us a bit about um, retrieval practice and space practice. What are they? How do they differ? And how can how are they used? Uh, or how should they be used? Hi, Blake. think we may have lost him temporarily. He, I know he was having some problems with the signal where he was. Um, hopefully we'll get him back soon. Oh, um, it seems as if he may have been logged out. Uh, Blake, if you can hear us, could you please call us again um, and then we can patch you in again. So if you can hear us, Blake, if you could call back again. Oh, there he is. Hi, Blake. Hey, I'm Hi. sorry. I cannot get a good place where I have internet capabilities uh, and I'm out of the <laughs> That's all right. Don't worry. That's fine. Um, thank you for joining us back again. <laughs> um, so before we uh, went on the news break yeah. and ad break, we were talking about um, space practice and retrieval practice. Uh, um, so what what are they and how can they be used in the classrooms? Sure. So um, you know, space practice is, is it's, it's 
essentially spacing out your practice. And that, that means putting time between uh, when you've encountered information um, in the classroom some way through instruction um, and when you're attempting to retrieve that information, which that brings us to retrieval and retrieval practice. Um, and in it's so if, if we're talking about um, dates of a war or how to balance an equation or something like that, um, you know, retrieval practices is using that information in some way, right? Now that can look like retrieval practice might be using the information in a class discussion. Um, it may be answering questions, you know, uh, on a piece of paper. It may be completing an essay, um, but just in some way, you're re you're retrieving that knowledge and using it, um, and and spacing it out, um, which is valuable, but it's tough to to teach kids that this is this is the way to do it better than cramming um, for an exam or whatever. Spacing it out is, is taking the time to look at, look at that information and attempt to retrieve that information um, over a, a period of time, right? So um, instead of, you know, I've got a, an exam coming up Friday, so Thursday night I'm going to study for two, three hours. Um, instead of doing that, knowing that I got the exam coming up Friday, you know, studying, you know, a little bit Monday night and a little bit Tuesday night and a little bit Wednesday night. Um, and about a, you know, a century's worth of, of research has shown that there's higher retention with that spaced practice um, than with the one-time shot cramming um, for you know, an exam or, or really any type of assessment. Um, spacing it out, it, number one, it, what you find is that you're not thinking to yourself that I'm going to sit and study for hours on end. Um, maybe I'm going to give it 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes. Um, and that's a little easier to digest um, because in reality, who's, who's paying attention for, you know, hours on end? You're, you're going to lose focus anyway. Um, so, so spacing it out is typically, again, another more efficient way to study um, instead of trying to come up at the very end. Test or whatever. Hello? Yeah. Thank, thank you, Blake. Um, Joseph just texted. He said that's exactly how he works best, um, especially when he's doing uh, music stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, it, again, it's, it's, it's easier to, to, again, to kind of chew on 15 or 20 minutes of work um, over a course of days or even weeks instead of one really long time of studying. Um, but that, that requires some, some thinking ahead. It requires being proactive with your scheduling. Um, so it's tough. To, I mean, it's tough for adults to do, so it's really tough for students to do. Um, plus, they see when they do the cramming and they'll cram for an exam, they see results. Um, but I think what they probably see, though, is if, if they didn't have the exam, you know, they may do well on the exam that day. But if they need that information long term, they're going to forget it from that cramming session, whereas um, they're going to remember it for longer and retain that information um, with the space, the space retrieval rather than the cramming. 
I, I was just about to say that that sometimes when they don't say well i forgot schools wasn't very good for me because i've forgotten what i learned it's it's some of that may be due to the fact that you only crammed for exams just before the exam and therefore didn't put it in your long-term memory um right um talking about exams um in UK, our students will be sitting their GCSEs and A-level exams in the summer. Um, because of COVID and the disruption to education, the students will be, you know, they will be asking their teachers, what should they study and how should I study? Sure. What right. is, and, what is and, your advice to teachers? And, and... Oh, we've lost you again. For, for when to study and how to study. I'm very sorry. Blake, we've lost you again. <laughs> for this, I don't... We've lost you again. I don't know what to do. Uh. Hello? That's all right. It, it, yeah, hi. You're back. Hi, Blake. I know Blake's having uh, some problems with his uh, internet where he is. Um, he doesn't seem to be able to get a really strong signal um, at his school where he is at the minute. Um, he, he was joining us from his school um, and his connection seemed to be... Oh, can you hear me now? Out. Yes, yes, I can. Noreen. Yes, I can hear you. Okay, great. Sorry, I'm very sorry. That's all right. It's not, you know, these things happen. Sure. Um, so, so you asked kind of like when, when should teachers talk to their students about when to study and how to yeah. study? Yeah. So I guess the when to study, if you're looking at space practice, is, is uh, you know, starting pretty much as, as soon as possible. Now, what I don't, I mean, obviously at this point, they haven't gone through all of the, the entire curriculum, but um, you could make a point to going back to some of the early things that we that you discussed in class that they're going to need to know. Um, and especially if you're in a subject like when I think math, where one concept builds on another concept, um, mm -hmm. you know, going back to those basic concepts and making sure those are really solid in their, their, uh, in their understanding. Um, and so when I think about what to study and I'm talking about to my, to my students, um, in class, um, I have them think back to some of the assessments we've done uh, throughout a unit. You know, if we're getting ready for a, a summative unit test or a unit exam, I have them think back to some of the smaller formative assessments we've done. Uh, and, you know, what did you struggle with, right? What, when we did, a, you know, a, a, a short little retrieval practice on um, whatever, parts of the eye or the process of vision, you know, did you understand that well? And if not, that's what you need to prioritize. So, you know, when we're talking with students, we know that there's a finite amount of time um, for their studying. Um, they don't just have endless hours. So they need to prioritize, but they need to learn how to prioritize. And again, um, I usually start with my students with, well, what did you struggle with earlier in this unit or earlier in the school year? What did you find particularly difficult? Um, and I know it's not fun to go back to those things, um, but that's how you get better at it is is working through them and trying those concepts again and and really making sure you've you've um, 
you know, nailed down those, those basic concepts perhaps so that you can build upon them. Thank you. Um, thank, thank, um, wherever you're supposed, you are right now, that's supposed to be working really. I think we can hear you better now. So that's, okay, don't move. <laughs> right. Um, going on to something else now. Um, when I was teaching, I loved setting my students multiple choice questions. Um, I used them a lot. Um, and I felt they allowed me to test more knowledge uh, in the time of the exam, which I had, than if I, if I gave them um, you know, an essay type of quest, um, question to answer to. Um, also for me, it took away any bias I may have. You know, For example, if a good legible handwriting as compared to something I struggled right. to read, um, it also made marking so much easier. Uh, you know, it, the paper itself was hard to set, but the marking of, of scripts was 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 really easy as compared to reading um, long form essays. Right. Um, so I, I know you've written um, a blog on multiple choice questions about um, where you talk about two strategies which students can use with multiple choice questions, uh, which can aid them in remembering the material. And I was really fascinated by this because I'd never thought of, thought of this, uh, of multiple choice questions from the student's point of view. Um, and if I had known this then, I certainly would have taught my students about this. So can you tell your, our listeners a bit, about, uh, a bit more about these uh, strategies? Sure. Uh, well, I've written a kind of a, a, a lot on multiple choice questions because um, my the AP exam that they have to take in May, there are 100 multiple choice questions. Um, so it just makes sense to me um, to have my students practice the type of questions that they're going to need to, to take for their exam. Um, and, and like you kind of mentioned, that they're, they're very efficient. Um, you can get you can have students uh, working through more knowledge than, like you said, uh, like one essay. Yeah. Uh, they may spend 20 or 30 minutes in that amount of time. They can answer, you know, 15, 20 multiple choice questions. Um, so it's a, li a little bit more efficient. So there are a few, few things I do with multiple choice questions to get more out of it than just, you know, read this question and choose A, B, C, or D. All right. Um, so I've got, I got this one template that requires students to use all aspects of the multiple choice question, right? So they read the multiple choice question and they obviously choose what they believe to be the correct answer. Um, but then with all the wrong answers, I have them do something with all of that, which is just you, requiring them to kind of compare contrast. It's requiring them to use that information, even though it's wrong for this question, right? For instance, I may have them, okay, now write a question where this is the right answer. Right. Or I may have them say, OK, of these four, four or five uh, qu question um, distractors, you know, the wrong ones, which one do you think people are more likely to choose? Right. Why would they choose this one as the right answer, even though it's wrong? Right. So asking them to perhaps think about misconceptions that others might even have in their knowledge um, or, you know, if something in particular has to is kind of. Um, can, can be put into an illustration, especially if it's some type of diagram, I'll have them use it again, even if it's the wrong, um, the wrong answer. So, you know, instead of them reading question, choosing correct answer, they're tasked also with doing something with all of the wrong answers, right? So instead of just, they, they're utilizing and drawing out one part of information, they're retrieving one bit of information to correctly answer, 
they've also got to use all of the other aspects of the multiple choice question, which um, obviously, yes, it takes a lot longer. But if you think about it, you know, if you've got A, B, C, and D on that question, now they're effectively, instead of just utilizing information on if A is the right answer, right? If they're, they're just using A, they've got to pull out information for B, for C, and D. So in a way, it's almost as if they have now answered four questions in one. Um, because they've used all of that bit of all of that different information. Um, another thing that I've started doing uh, really last semester, I, I, I wrote about this, I believe, is kind of reverse engineering the multiple choice question, um, where I provide the answers A, B, C, and D, um, and they've got to write the questions, right? So, you know, um, one thing I did last semester is. I had some of my, you know, I would give the A, B, C, and D answers, and I had some of my students, they had to write a question where A was the right answer, and some of my students had to write a question where B was the right answer, and one, some where C was the right answer, and then some where D was the right answer, and then I took up all their sheets of paper, scrambled them up, and handed them out to each other, um, and they had to answer everybody else's multiple choice questions. Now, it, that, you know, it, it can be tough to write the stem of a multiple choice question, um, but that, that's good practice too. More insight for my students in on how to write a multiple choice question can in a way help them to answer uh, multiple choice questions. So um, in that way, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's flipping the multiple choice question on its head, um, but they're still required to use that information uh, just in a different way. Uh, because obviously, and what I'll tell my students is that if you can't write a question or if you can't write a multiple choice question where A is correct, then you don't know A well enough. Right. If you can't write a question where B is correct, then you don't know B well enough. And having them really think about that, right, if that's metacognition, right, having them think about and understand their level of understanding, um, realizing where they've got holes in their learning, and then utilizing that to affect their future studies. And that's kind of the whole goal of all of this, at least in my mind, is, is helping them to properly be able to assess themselves and then go forward with that information. That is really, really fascinating. I, I love that. I love the reverse engineering bit. It's uh, it makes them think really deeply because um, I, I think you know a, a multiple choice question. The answers will be pretty close to each other. There's there's you know um, a, a well formed multiple choice question will make you think about it. There will be there might be one question when one answer one option which you know is not right, but the right. other three may be right if if you were you know you may the student may think it's right and trying to get them to think about making a question where where they where the others can just get you know the, the correct answer that that will really make them think hard about the correct answer as well as the wrong answer about how to how to make a question where the wrong answer is the wrong answer correct and what i found interesting with this and i didn't realize this until i used it did, did this with my students is that Oftentimes, they'd write a question where, you know, for instance, A is the correct answer, but then also within that question, C was also a right answer. Yes. yes. So then they even had to think about it even deeper. So how can I make A correct, but now C is also incorrect? Yes. Or you can make it to where, you know, again, depending on the question, like have one where A and B are correct, right? So now they've got, to, okay, in what instances can A and B be correct, but C and D are incorrect? So you can really do a lot with that. Um, and again, it's, it's great retrieval and it, it ensures understanding of the material to be able to write the question. Um, we've had Joe text us. Uh, she says, that sounds really hard. 
um, and somebody else um, texting us who says smart. <laughs> it, it, it can be, and that's a great point. Is that you know all of these, a lot of the strategies that I write about on 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 my blog, um, it takes a couple of times with my students for them to to get the get the strategy down. You know, because there are kind of two aspects to this: the understanding the strategy, and then understanding the material, the 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 curriculum within that strategy. So, you know, at the beginning of a semester, I may spend a little bit more time um, nailing down the strategy with my students and how to use this strategy. Um, but by the end of the semester, they're rolling with it, you know, where they may need very direct instruction at the beginning of the year of how to write, uh, you know, how to reverse engineer that. A month or two in, you know, they can walk in, see that's what they're doing, and they can get to it on their own. Um, but you're right. It, it does take practice um, and it takes an investment in time, but you're going to see a return on that investment later. And the ultimate return is that with good cognitive psychology, you know, it, it's not just strategies for my classroom. Good cognitive psychology is a strategy in every type of classroom. Um, so the real re return on investment is that they take that from my class to math, to history, to English, to Latin, to wherever, and they're still utilizing these better cognitive strategies for learning. That's, that's a really great point about um, if, if you arm them with the correct strategies about how to learn and how to test their own knowledge, it's not only your subject that uh, they can apply it to, they can apply it across the field and it makes them a good, better student across the field. Sure, exactly. And then, and then your surgeon, going back to our surgeon here, our surgeon knows more. Yes. And when our surgeon knows more, he or she can apply more. And then he or she is a better surgeon. Give it, you, know, um, you know, it all builds on itself. Lovely. Um, Joe also texted us that she had read your blog um, and the one where you said you had used your template. And she used that with her year three and fours. Um, the answers and the conversations she had after they had done used the template um, were fascinating, she says. Yeah, it, it's, it is interesting, even with my high school students, that they think in ways that you, don't, you, you as the teacher don't, don't see it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they bring, bring out a lot of good points that you don't even see, or they look at it from a different angle, which can then spur on bigger and better discussions um, that they're leading, which is obviously great. Um, going on to another thing which students sometimes use um, as one of their strategies to learn. Um, and I remember when I was a student, there were four of us who used to study together. And um, so we used to, you know, exchange notes and test each other, etc. Um, one of my friends was really fond of highlighting. And she used to, you know, her whole pages and pages would be highlighted orange or whatever color she was using. Right. Um, and she was so fond of it that I told her once that highlighting what she didn't think was important would be better because <laughs> it would save her lots of time because rather than turn, either uh, uh, highlighting every sentence, she, I'd rather she, if she highlighted the, the one which she didn't think was important, that saved time and would make the paper look less orange. Of course. Um, yes. of course. So what are your feelings about highlighting? And does it have a place in study, in revision, or how, how should a student, um, is there a good way of highlighting? That's, that's a great point. And I think in the, I'll call what, what you were just describing kind of the traditional sense of highlighting. Yeah. Um, and kind of the point you were making is that if you highlight everything, if everything is important, then nothing is important. Um, 
So it, it's tough. Now, highlighting can be done, I believe, well, and it does have a place. Um, in my mind, when it, when something is highlighted, it needs to indicate something to the learner. It needs to tell the learner something, um, even beyond what what what's important. Um, so when we in my classroom, where we, when we do retrieval practice, when we do reviews, we use we use highlighters, some sort of indicator. Um, and what my students will do is the first time, you know, if I've set them, you know, whatever, 10 questions, it, it doesn't really matter, 10 questions. Um, the way we use highlighters in class is um, the first times they go through trying to answer, um, they use only their brain, right? And they answer all the questions they can answer using only their brain. And let's say that they can answer seven of the questions. So that means three of them with their brain, they had no idea. Well, I'll have my students highlight those three. Yeah. And it indicates to them, you know, my students know this by now, that now whatever's highlighted on my retrieval practice, whatever, on our review, um, is what I didn't know, or I couldn't even guess on, right? Now, guessing is, a, is another topic, mm. um, but, but that tells my students immediately, like, they, I didn't even know this well enough to even give it a guess, right? Um, and then I'll have them go through a second time with their notes. And hopefully they can check their answers that they've put down. They can fill in the answers they didn't know with just their brain and they'll highlight that a different color. So at that point they know that that's what they knew with their notebook and that's what their notes knew. Now, if after that they're left still with information that they don't know, that tells them number one, my brain didn't know it. Number two, my notes, I didn't even get it in my notes. Um, so then I have them think about, well, why don't I have this in my notes? Was I absent that day? Um, you know, why, do, you know, and it should call to mind to them, like, you know, why does everyone else know this, but I don't, right? And it has them think about, well, you know, when I'm absent, what, what am I doing when I get back? Am I making sure I'm catching up with my work or whatnot? So, um, you know, the, the highlighter used in that little strategy, and I call that brain book buddy, um, is, is the highlighter tells them what they knew at different stages of attempts of retrieval, what they only using their brain, what they knew using brain and notebook, and then finally, brain uh, using their peers around them. You know, what do their peers know that they don't know? And if their peers know something they don't know, they need to highlight that in a different color. Um, but in that case, you know, highlighting is, is not being used in the traditional sense where it's just highlighting everything I read, right? Um, it's, it's indicating a level of learning or a level of understanding to the students. And that's much more valuable um, than your friend highlighting their page orange, you know? Yes. A complex has texted and she said it's, uh, she or he said it's color blindest, sadly. Um, yes, that, that is a point. Um, yeah, true. We, that, is, that is true, a very good point to make. Um, but we were just discussing about those students who, who do use it. So if you, if somebody is going to use a highlighter, then they might as well use it properly and correctly to Correct. get more out of it. Um, than not sure, well, but an easy way to accommodate that is to, to use an asterisk um, uh -huh. or just some sort of, you know, shape or something out yeah. to the side of, the, of the, the numbers, the questions. And you can still, you know, as long as you've got a little key, you've still got the same effect. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's that's interesting as well. Yeah, the, 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 the whole premise is, is the whole idea behind everything is, is to get them to learn better and, and to work smarter. Um, right. Uh, so um, we would, uh, I've, I've learned, I've read a few of your blogs on um, 
prior knowledge. Um, and we see that students who have access to museums or books, etc., uh, they do better when they encounter the topics they've already come across before in these museums or the books they've read. So does prior knowledge help students acquire more knowledge? And if yes, how can the teacher use this in the classroom to benefit her students? Oh, of course. Um, prior knowledge, having having a already developed a schema, right, which is essentially kind of a network of knowledge, knowing how information ties together with other information. Um, having a having an accessible schema, accessing that prior knowledge um, in class is is huge. Um, it, calling that into question, calling that. Uh, to our memory, right, by whatever, a story or even questions at the beginning of class um, makes it much more likely that, that students will be able to attach whatever is going to be taught to that information. Um, and, you, and I know in my sense, or in, in my case, that sometimes we just assume that students will understand the connections from what we're studying now to what we studied in the past. Um, or what, how this applies to their life even. Um, but sometimes you've, you've got to be more explicit with that and, again, call to question that prior knowledge and, and how does this fit into your life and where have you seen this before? Um, and, you know, the, the ability to have that prior knowledge makes it easier to build on top of, right? Um, and, again, going back to math, it's, easy, it's very easy to see this in math, but understanding uh, oftentimes in math one concept builds upon another concept. So having prior knowledge, prior understanding of a simpler concept is often required to build upon with that, that simple concept with a more complex um, concept, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, so, so prior knowledge is, is, is huge. Um, and like you said, we do see this in, in those that, that um, have more life experiences. Um, to a certain extent, there's only so much teachers can do, you know, with that, um, you know, but at, just as we talked about Googling, it isn't a good thing. Um, in some instances, in some instances it is, you know, we, we can't, we may not be able to go to, you know, to, to a museum, but we can access a piece of art. We can access this artifact online and they can see it and they can attach an image to it, um, and talk about it. And, you know, um, and that can help to build that prior knowledge or access prior knowledge when we're going into new information. Um, so, you know, just like most things in education, um, the internet can be, can be good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very true. Right. Um, right, now going on to your latest blogs about, um, and coming on to, you know, what is psychology. Um, you've written a few blogs on psychology um, in the classroom. And these have been, again, like your other blogs, really fascinating to read. Um, so first question, what gave you the idea of writing these blogs? So, well, it, it actually came from realizing that we all have different, we all have different levels of knowledge on different things. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes we assume that everybody knows what we know, um, that we don't see value in it sometimes. Um, but then I realized that I teach a very, a very unique class with a very unique curriculum, especially for high school students, but even again, for teachers, for adults. Um, and, you know, as I've taught this class, I can remember coming across certain terms, certain concepts, um, which apply to life and can even apply to the classroom. And I've always kind of thought those things, but then they went out, you know, they kind of went out of my brain. Um, 
but this semester especially, I've made a concerted effort of, as I come across those terms now, to try and, you know, write about it, you know, maybe in a social sense, like what does this mean in, in society, but then how does it more directly tie to the classroom? You know, whether it be confirmation bias and belief perseverance was one I wrote about, or the curse of knowledge, right? Which is kind of what I was describing before, where mm. I kind of assumed that everybody knows what knew what I knew, so I didn't see any value in talking about these things, but many people don't know about these things. So I wanted to, to kind of put together a series of just kind of common cognitive terms in psychology, a lot of social terms in psychology, mm-hmm. uh, see how they apply to the classroom, which I thought that teachers across the globe um, maybe had experienced in the classroom and not known what it was, um, but now they can put a name to it and, and utilize it more effectively in the classroom for, for the benefit of the students. Uh, what I've loved about these blogs is, um, is they're really accessible. You don't have to have you know, a major in psychology to be able to understand what you're talking about. It's, uh, anybody can pick up a blog and read it and understand what you're saying and say, yeah, I, I, I can see how that works and I, I know what that is. Oh. Um, so, yeah. Um, we've got a comment. It says, I've always been natural with computers and I often lose people when explaining things because I sometimes assume they know some of the words or concepts that I know. Exactly. That's what you were talking about. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the curse of knowledge right there. Yeah, right. yeah. we assume yeah. that other people have the knowledge we do, um, and then we don't explain that as well. We see that with teachers commonly, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, where even to the extent of, well, I taught you this yesterday. Yeah. Why don't you know it today? Or we assume you know it today, um, which to, to a degree we have to we have to move forward. I get that. Um, but oftentimes the, the thing that we're teaching or the concept we're teaching in class, we've, we've experienced that information and used that information for however long we've been in class, you know, for 10 years, 20 years. But for many students, they heard about it for the first time yesterday. Hmm. Uh, and you think back to how well you would have wanted to use or apply that information the first time you heard it. Um, so, and we become biased in that way. And that's kind of where we see the curse of knowledge, uh, at least in the classroom. So if it's okay with you, I'd just like to explore these blogs just a little bit in, in, in slightly more detail. Um, the first one you wrote was about uh, selective attention. Now, what is that and should, how, why should teachers be aware of it? Yeah, so selective attention is just, it's the limitation of, of our conscious awareness. It's our, the limitation of what we can focus on. Um, we can only selectively attend to so many things in our environment. Um, for instance, whatever you're looking at right now, whatever you're listening to right now, that's what you're consciously paying attention to. But that doesn't stop the rest of the world around you from going on. Um, but whatever you're selectively attending to is what you have a chance to remember. Um, and it's, it's key to understanding that when we think about students who try to perhaps multitask in classroom and they're, I'm trying to pay attention to two things uh, or three things at once while I'm studying, you know, that that's not good because again, you've got very limited selective attention or in a classroom that is incredibly, um, I'm going to say busy, but busy is the wrong term, but has a lot going on, um, distract students um, from what they really need to be paying attention to in the lesson. Um, you know, an understanding that there's only so much attention to go around and we need to make sure it, the students are attending to what we need them to attend to to learn um, is key because 
if not, they're going to attend to whatever the, you know, the shiniest, the loudest thing around them is. And um, that may not be what they need to be paying attention to. Um, do you think a very busy classroom displays could also affect this? I definitely do, yes. Um, I, I, I definitely believe that um, whatever displays in the classroom needs to be I mean, it, at its best on what you're talking about that day, but I understand we can't, we're not changing displays necessarily every single day, but at least in the, the unit of study you're in, um, because they can, they can definitely be distracting um, to learners. It, it gives them something else to focus on, yeah. um, which like I was saying earlier, might not be what they need to be focusing on. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I have to, um, oh, Joseph says he's super minimalistic with displays. Um, he he hates over-the-top displays. So. Oh yes. Yeah. I'm the same way. Maybe to a fault, though. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes I need to put a little bit more in them, but I want them to say what they need to say, and not a not a word more, and not a graphic more. Well, exactly. And um, you also have to look at you know if you're making it all nice, singing, dancing, colorful. How much time have you put in that? Oh, and could correct. Could you have been doing something else? Exactly. If the if that coloring, if that dancing doesn't apply to what you're trying to teach them, yes, um, then it's probably a waste of your time. Yeah, exactly. And their, and their time. Exactly. Yes, both of your time. Yeah. Um, I have. To, I'm going to take another short break. So don't move from wherever you are because we can hear you really well now. And it's, right. it's lovely to be able to um, to chat to you. But we're just taking another break for um, news and the ads, and we'll be soon back with you. Sure. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland Full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion. 
for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, the Scottish Liberal Democrats have lodged 25 questions to the Scottish Government about plans to tackle ventilation in schools. One question asks about the health and safety impacts of the plans to chop the bottom of classroom doors off. Willie Rennie, the Liberal Democrat education spokesperson, said, This has been a torrid week for the Scottish Government. Its plans to improve ventilation in schools have been exposed as totally lacking in scale and detail. It is now two years since the virus arrived in Scotland. The lack of action on the part of the Scottish Government to drive ventilation improvements nationwide is leaving pupils and teachers shivering. The Scottish Government said it had provided councils with £10 million for ventilation and carbon dioxide monitoring, as well as the £5 million recently added. In England, teachers have warned that the release of advanced information on exam subjects for GCSEs and A-levels to mitigate the impact of the pandemic comes too late and may not be enough. Exam boards have said previously that they would release the advanced information now rather than earlier in the academic year so that pupils did not cover a narrow curriculum. Mary Bowsted, National Education Union Joint General Secretary said, there are grave concerns among teachers of exam groups that this will not be enough to fairly mitigate the disruption these students have experienced over two academic years. There is just one half term left until Easter, close to when exams begin, and little time to rush through any content. Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi said, that exams are the best and fairest form of assessment and that the information published will make sure students can do themselves justice. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, it's Safe Internet Week with the official day being on Tuesday the 8th of February. This year, the UK Safer Internet Centre is questioning whether gaming online is all fun and games. They ask young people to explore respect and relationships in online gaming. A lot of schools may be having drop down days and you may be expected to deliver an online safety lesson. This is great, but are you confident in your knowledge? There's nothing worse than having to teach a lesson out of your comfort zone, especially when you're discussing a topic where the learners may know more than the teacher. 
saferinternet.org.uk, the brains behind Safer Internet Day, have come to the rescue with a series of films under the heading of Virtual Assemblies on their website. Starting with a story about in-app purchases getting out of hand for 3 to 7 year olds, and then for 7 to 11 and 11 to 18s having a discussion on online behaviour and respect. This resource is informative and will allow those of us that are less confident to play the film and facilitate a discussion. As always, if you're going to use an online resource, make sure you've watched it first to make sure it's appropriate for your pupils. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm Noreen Khalid. We are live on Teachers Talk Radio. This is the late show where we have been chatting to Blake Harvard about all things cognition. Um, he's done a few blogs on, on psychology and how to use that in, um, in the classroom. And, and the last few minutes, just before we went for the news, um, we were chatting to him about that. Um, so, um, uh, your next block was um, curse of knowledge. Let's let's talk a little bit about curse of knowledge. We've, we've, we've discussed a little bit about that first, but um, 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 I'd like to hear a bit more, please. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the way I apply it, um, it is all about thinking about, um, as the teacher, I, I like to, to think about it from my end. Um, as far as what I expect my students to know, again, knowing that, as we touched on earlier, that forgetting is normal, that they're not going to remember things. And um, it helps me to have more, more of an open mind and a little more forgiving with them um, than when I expect them, you know, say again, I, I taught them something and I expect them to know it the next day. Um, but then I also ask my, my students to think about that um, from the standpoint of the students to the teacher. Um, you know, everybody... Uh, we all bring unique experiences and unique information into the classroom. Um, and again, with the curse of knowledge, we, we tend to think that everyone has the same information and the same experiences and the same knowledge that we do. Um, but that that's rarely, rarely ever the case. Um, so it, it helps everyone to keep an open mind, to be a little more compassionate to the people around us, be a little kinder. Um, and, and to be, you know, and with that open mind, the ability to, to be ready to learn a little bit more, I think. Thank you. Um, something which um, I think teachers need to be aware of is confirmation bias. Mm. What is confirmation bias? Why should we be aware of it? Yeah, definitely. So confirmation bias, um, I, it's more, mostly a social psych term, psychology term, um, where we look for information that confirms our beliefs Mm -hmm. um, we seek out information that confirms our beliefs and in doing so we ignore any information that is contrary to our beliefs. Um, certainly we can see that. I mean, gosh, unfortunately we can see that in politics, especially in the United States where people, where people get their news and what news they listen to. But, um, you know, but also we can see it in the classroom, um, in the actions of our students and unfortunately how we made falsely judge a student um, because um, they may confirm 
you know, um, what we think about how, how they look or something like that, which is never the way, uh, you know, we, we should ever look at our students. Um, but sometimes we have these biases built in um, and we need to be aware of them um, and, and not jump to conclusions because of those, these biases. Thank you. Um, how, how, how do we train ourselves not to do that? Can we train ourselves not to do that? I, I hope so. Um, you know, I think the biggest hurdle, I think, is just understanding what it is mm -hmm. um, and getting comfortable um, with looking for information that may not confirm what you believe. Yeah. Um, and, and being able to look at other sources, even though they may say you're wrong or they may prove or they may have, you know, an opinion that isn't of yours um, and allowing it to maybe, you know, change your mind a little bit to open your mind a little bit, but also still being able to look at that and say, you know what, I still believe what I believe. Um, but what, what we, we stop with that is um, another psych term that I haven't written about, group polarization. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if we only seek out information that confirms our beliefs and we never look for information that may be in opposition to it, then what we see is that we get more entrenched in our beliefs and we get more polarized with our beliefs. Um, away from the center. Um, so th there's a lot of, you know, again, like getting back to your original question, you know, what can, you know, can we kind of train ourselves? I think so. And it's, it's especially in the United States right now, it's very much needed uh, because it feels like we're getting more and more polarized in our beliefs um, as a society, which is, you know, kind of outside the scope of, of, um, of the classroom. But um, still applies to our students in creating better citizens. So I, I, I suppose if, if we can make our students and ourselves aware that there is something called confirmation bias, that it, it may exist in us. So even if we learn not to, just just being aware of it may, may change our, our behavior some way. Definitely. And, and just the understanding that just because I read something that's contrary to, contrary to my beliefs, mm doesn't mean um, that it has to change my mind right. um, yeah. or that I have to, you know, judge that person because they disagree with me. Um, that That's also not a good thing that comes from confirmation bias. And Joe, George just asked, is, is, does that mean actively looking for stuff that challenges us? I, I, I think so. I, I think a little bit. I mean, not, not in every facet of your life, you know. Mm. Um, but I think when, it, when you're trying to get to the truth, um, if you're really interested in finding out the truth, whether that be, again, a political issue or, or whatever, um, I think you need to seek out both sides of, of, of a story, so to speak, or however many sides there are, to at least have a more informed opinion. Um, again, because there's almost always two sides to a story. Um, but so seeking out all the sides, at least somewhat of an opinion of all the sides, will only make you more knowledgeable um, on that opinion, which can in turn actually further uh, make your make your opinion, you know, more intelligent, I guess, or more well-rounded. Yeah, complex says um, that's the very concept of learning, isn't it? Uh, I, I, at its best, it definitely is, I believe, yeah. yes. Yeah. Right, um, well, there's lots more we could have talked about, uh, but we are rapidly coming to the end of the show. It's been 
wonderful chatting to you, Blake. Thank you so, so much for taking time out of your day to, to join us. Um, it's, uh, you know, if anyone hasn't read Blake's blogs, please do subscribe to them. They are, they are one of the best ones um, around there. Um, and and the, like I said before, they, they are written in a way which, it, which makes really uh, difficult concepts really accessible. And then he gives you um, references to readings. So if you want to go ahead and read the actual papers, etc., you've got that. So you can go and read the paper. Uh, but you know, use Blake's um, blogs as a, as a jumping off point to to more complex thinking. Thank you, Blake. Thank you so much. Um, I'll let you get on with your day. You've been really uh, you've stood out in the in the in the howling wind to talk to us. So that's been really greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Um, and you know enjoy the rest of your day oh thank you so much i really appreciate it i'm sorry i couldn't find a good spot to be in uh that's all right uh, but i've i've thoroughly enjoyed the the conversation and thank you for the kind words thank you thank you blake right um everybody um you've um my show finishes in about a couple of minutes uh so you've got time to go and grab yourself um a cup of coffee or something to eat and then come back uh, because when you come back you'll have at 10 o'clock we've got um, Ed Finch and Toby Payne Cook with their show now if you've ever listened to them before you'll know that that's another show not to miss as they, they are really good fun and that's a really good way to wind down um, just before your head you know your head hits the pillow uh, your head hits the pillow and go off to sleep so so go off, grab yourself a coffee, come back to hear Ed and Toby, and um, and I'll see you next time. Thank you all for joining in. Thank you. Good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.